0: Welcome to Season 4 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's festival of ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers, and each other. Today's episode of Writers' Festival Radio is hosted by the festival's Neil Wilson, director of our Republic of Childhood Youth Literacy and Self-Expression Program. He spotlights Jamila at the End of the World by Palestinian-Canadian author, essayist, arts journalist, and activist, Mary Lou Zaitun. Her previous novel, 13, was the YA winner of the New England Book Festival Award, and she divides her time between Toronto and Ottawa. When electricity overconsumption during a summer heatwave causes a citywide blackout, Jamila's eco-anxiety kicks into high gear. After years of doom scrolling and being inundated by warnings of a looming climate change catastrophe, she knows this is it. The end for the planet and life as she knows it. So why is no one in her family taking her plans to save them by converting the garage into a bunker seriously? Is it really up to Jamila to save the world on her own? We'll begin with a taste of the prose, followed by their conversation.
1: My name is Jamila Mansour and I need to do something because climate change, I'm 17, my dad is a Palestinian immigrant from like 30 years ago, and my mom is an old tiny Anglo-Canadian. He's a pharmacist and mom's a naturopath. We live in Toronto, Canada. So that's like a normal background here, really. It's me, mom and dad, my 15-year-old sister, Noor, my 12-year-old brother, George, and Tata in the granny suite downstairs. To be honest, my bunker obsession had been going on for a while. I think it started when I was little and saw a totally awful American hurricane on TV. The desperate people stuck in gridlocks on the highways and trapped in sports stadiums. The worst thing in the TV coverage was the families waiting to be rescued on roofs. There was a dog they had to leave behind because it couldn't fit into the helicopter rescue basket. When the camera pulled back, you could see the animals left behind. The cats were miserable, terrified smudges in the corners because cats hate open spaces and loud noises. That's what got me. I think I have PTSD from seeing the people on the roofs and the pets dying. So, I just need to build. I just needed to build a safe place to prepare and protect my family in case of climate disaster. Sure, people like my sister Noor go to protests and marches all the time. But what's the point of marches? People have been marching since the 80s and the climate's like worse now. In fact, I don't even see the point of going to university. I'd rather spend my time doing something useful. By the time I got my basic general BA, because my math scores were so bad, even though I love science, I couldn't go into science, the world would have imploded into anarchic city-states run by militia because, hello, climate change. I figured I could just use the time to convert the garage into an off-the-grid tiny house, a bunker really. In case you didn't know, a bunker is a room, a safe space, a place where you store food, water, and even weapons. I was also gonna find a way to get a generator. We were in a terrible heat wave when I first inspected the garage for bunker possibilities. I went out back and pulled on its side door. It stuck at first then popped open. A waft of mildewy air hit my face as I looked around. I saw an elliptical machine and a recumbent exercise bike, which we moved out of the basement when Tata got here. Leaning against a full-length craft mirror was a half-bowl carpet. In the middle was a green, big green painted dresser with a black garbage bag, squatting on top of it half open and spilling baby clothes. I opened a dresser drawer. It was empty except for a scattering of mice poop. The space was about 10 by 14 feet. The cinder block element was good. You could do a lot with cinder blocks. They're good for insulation, are fireproof, and are easy to paint. Yes, this would make an excellent bunker. I slowly turned. One wall was lined with rickety shelves full of plastic bins. Our leaking fiberglass canoe hung from the ceiling. I'd have to save that in case of a flood. Past the jumble of busted bikes by the door was an entire shelf filled with broken coffee makers, lamps, and even ashtrays when Mom used to smoke. I could work with this. No one was using the garage anyway. Mom and Dad never parked the car in it because the alley leading up to it was too narrow. So the garage was always used as, let's face it, a dumping ground. Mom had painted the wall that faced the backyard bright blue with a fake window complete with a flower box, which looked totally pathetic and not cheerful. I approached Mom and Dad at breakfast. CBC Radio was muttering in the background as always. Mom was having her protein shake with organic blueberries, organic whey protein, and flaxseed oil. She was all about clean eating and crystals, and she bleached her hair. I'm just saying, even though she was a vegetarian naturopath, she put purple streaks in her hair that, I like to remind her, required a highly toxic bleaching process first. Dad was eating za'atar, dipping pieces of pita into the dried herbal mixture of thyme, sumac, and sesame seeds. He was very picky about his za'atar buying only Palestinian brands, and even scoffing at the Lebanese and Syrian formulas. That's a pretty mild guy. But if you want to make him mad, John an Israeli an Israeli fusion restaurant menu that lists Zatar or any Palestinian food as Israeli cuisine. Woo, you'll like yell at the manager. Otherwise, we are not very political. We are Christian Arabs, which is really annoying because nobody thinks that's a thing. It's Jesus of Nazareth, not Dublin. Geez. Uncle Gabriel always says the angry mob isn't going to stop to ask this difference when we come up against Islamophobia. Aunt Lily, who writes a lifestyle blog for the Globe and Mail, agrees. She gets a lot of snooty readers who are surprised she is so sophisticated and Palestinian. The most we ever do Palestinian-wise is go to folk dances at the Arab Center, eat Arabic food, and lately, translate for and volunteer with the Syrian refugees. Okay, we... Go to the Toronto-Palestinian Film Festival every fall, too. It's true. Sometimes my grandmother, who lives downstairs, cries because she remembers things from the old country. Anyway, I am not political that way. My best friend, Vivian, and I never talk about it, and she's Jewish. I mean, she has birthright and goes to Israel every year. So when she goes for vacation, we always give her things to give to my great-aunts in Haifa.
2: Oh, that's... That's a wonderful read. Let's continue. I know there's there's a lot of I- issues in the book, um, Palestine mm. being one. However, let's. I'd like to continue um, on the uh, the clearly. You know, I, I don't know if Jamila does have PTSD, but she is so. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like many young people and, and older people, but especially kids or teenagers her age and younger, we're hearing more and more that this climate catastrophe is really playing havoc with their minds.
1: Yeah. And um, my godsons and my nieces all, since they were, you know, 12, 13 years old, sleepless nights, terrified of
2: climate change. And this is obviously, was this the main reason why you yeah
1: um yeah the main reason was to talk about climate change and the sneaky underneath reason was to have a palestinian feminist girl without making a big fuss about it like just as if she was italian or a boy she can say and do what she wants you know Mm -hmm. i wanted to that's why it's uh, so it feels so issue heavy but it isn't really because it's not that big a deal and i'm hoping someday that In my heart, what I really wanted to do was get people to say Palestinian in a normal voice.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely undertones here. Uh, You know, people in the neighborhood, it seems, uh, are surprised that being a Palestinian also can mean being sophisticated and literate and, you know, Mm -hmm. activist in, in a positive way.
1: Yeah, my family, my father, my uncles, all highly educated, lovers of, you know, great literature, uh, you know, musical, I got to admit, <laughs> a little more educated than the Irish ancestors. Oh, <laughs> really? uh, yeah, a lot more, you know, it's like, it's like India, the British colonialism of Palestine also brought with it the uh, emphasis on Greek and Latin and classical education. And then there's the Arab poetry, love of poetry, and the love of music, and we don't see that. And Palestinians are tired of being seen as either oppressed women or terrorists. And it's just—I um, went to the uh, the, the support uh, for Gaza rally, a small rally at uh, Nelson Mandela Square. Mandela was a hero of my dad, and um, it's still shocking for me to see people who look like no one knows what a Palestinian looks like
2: because
1: we're not represented in the media at all. So it was, it was nice. Yeah. I I just want us us to be less demonized.
2: Well, you know, that's, I guess we're jumping right into, you know, climate change, but also you, in your acknowledgements, I was very uh, touched. Um, with your acknowledgements, you, you, you say, I'd like to acknowledge the young people yeah. protesting and educating us, oh, yeah. whether it be about climate or land rights. And this is where I guess mm-hmm. we, need, we need to, as, as much as we are talking about climate change, we need to obviously do more about climate change. And we're beginning to talk about, you know, land rights in terms of, uh, you know, the Indigenous uh, nations, the First Nations, Métis, and uh, Inuit, but there's no conversation anywhere about land rights for Palestine, or Palestinians.
1: It's interesting because um, Lee Miracle, the Indigenous novelist and just basically a badass, who sadly died last year, um, I thank her as well. And I conferred with her several times about how the Indigenous people of Canada are working with Palestinian Indigenous artists and that they consider Palestinians an Indigenous people. Of course. And I think that's going to reframe uh, our land rights. If there's Obviously, we have to work with Jews. We have to work with Israelis. It has to be in a spirit that isn't as confrontational. But something has to give. And the first step is reckon, recognizing us as human, which yeah. I'm sure the Israelis would agree with. You can violate people if you, if you say they're not human. And what about our Indigenous people here in Canada? The Jesuits came and they called the Indigenous people here savages. And so they could do what they wanted with them. And, you know, a a lot of Israeli young people are not for what's what's happening. And they're not for what the hardline conservative leaders in Israel are doing. And again, it's going to be the young Israelis that are going to make a difference, just like the young people are going to make a difference in climate change.
2: Yeah there's 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 some um, so many things uh, that we need to touch on and and one of the curious things um uh, mary lou and i began to read your your work and to do a little research on you uh and your career and your your past life if you will yeah you played, um theater you you want you wanted to i i guess yeah <laughs> pursue a career in the theater but what happened
1: Okay, I went into, I went into theater. Okay. (laughs) I was a troublemaker at Immaculata. And so they sent me to a bunch of IQ testing. And uh, I got asked not to return to Immaculata. And then it showed that I had a higher IQ and I should probably be a scientist or a neurosurgeon. And so I went to Glee, which I loved, and immediately went into theater and (laughs) completely ignored the sciences. And um, then I got my degree in theater because of literature. I hate acting, actually. I hate being on stage, but I was pretty. I was put on stage. I was even on a TV show. It was like, I hated it so much. I was like, why are you kissing me on both cheeks? I don't know you. It kind of, you know, the set kind of um, curt etiquette. And what I wanted was Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw, you know. That's what I wanted. I wanted to study that stuff. And then I, I loved Pauline Kale and um, mm-hmm. all the critics. So I actually ended up doing a few plays, doing a TV show, but really studying aesthetics and criticism. And I got my degree majoring in aesthetics and criticism, which suits me much better than being an object.
2: You're also um, involved with the disability arts community. Uh, tell
1: us about that. Yeah. Yeah, about I have a post viral syndrome, which now would be very similar to long haul COVID. So for about 22 years, I've had um, extreme fatigue, kind of like fibromyalgia. I'll be bedridden sometimes for a week or housebound for two months. But you know, I'm generally really good in the morning. And I get a second wind in the evening if I manage it, it's like an autoimmune disorder. So you know, I'm allergic to all perfumes and like, for breeze and you know, glade plugins and you know all that stuff. Environmental illness, really, which was another impetus for writing this book, because it's clearly an environmental illness where my immune system went wonky. So um, I support other um, writers with disabilities. And I, you know, have worked with the Deaf and Disability Arts program with the Ontario Arts Council. And, um, you know, I just try to um, be present and to shine a light on people with disabilities and artists with disabilities.
2: Wow. So this does, you know, have a quite, I mean, living with this condition really, really does take a toll on you.
1: Well, the thing is, like, if you can only like do stuff in your own, your brain's only clear in the morning. It, like I, I became a writer because I got sick. I was doing arts admin and probably going into television production. I probably would have ended up in television writing, you know, or film or something, documentary filmmaking, which I think was my, you know, when you're a kid, that's what I wanted to be. Um, but I, I turned to writing first as a theater critic in Toronto and um, than a music critic for a national music magazine because I'm an old punk rocker. So Hmm. um, I uh, turned to writing because I could store uh, this, this illness called ME, you store, it's like you will have a faulty battery. And with writing, you can store your energy and then expend it if you're really careful about managing and writing affords you that. Although we're in very interesting times right now for people with disabilities. The chronic fatigue and the ME community and the MS community are going, we've been asking you to let us work remotely for decades. And now people have more access to jobs. So I'm I'm curious to see what I'm gonna do, like maybe work for an arts council, do something like that. Something I could not have done on a nine to
2: five, five day a week situation. Wow, that's interesting. That's yeah, it, very yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah, the uh, long haul COVID people are going to have to be accommodated into the workforce,
0: you know? Um,
1: Yeah.
0: You're listening to writer's festival radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is perfect books on Elgin street and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now back to the conversation.
2: Yes. Well, let's, let's weave back now to this, uh, this, uh, this story Jamila at the end of the world. And so she is not the 17 year old, um, is not at all into marches and, and protests. Um
1: no, and this diffidence about not being super active is something I see in the young people in my life. I mean, there's there's Greta over in Europe, and then there's they're like, I have anxiety, I can't go do a blah blah blah. Like, oh my god, I'm not, you know, there's a lot of I have anxiety, I'm not doing this. Like they're very protective about their boundaries. And so I made her like that. But Noor is here, Mr. Sister. But I do find like for all the courageous young people, a lot of them are suffering from terrible anxiety.
2: Well, it's in, you know, how can I mean it's it's not surprising, you know, given, you know, the fact that we you know, as a as a community, as nations, we just don't seem to take this climate emergency serious. I mean. The I know. Saying we've got maybe maybe ten years.
1: In the nineties, they're like, "We have ten years to fix this."
2: Yeah. So you know, my heart is heavy. Yeah. yeah. Well, in fact, there was one sign. Well, let's 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 move on to this because, um, but Jamila gets so obsessed on you know building this bunker that she steals her mother's credit card. Yeah. And why is a $2,200 generator? <laughs> and I don't know. Does she think she's going to get away with this? She says, you know, that, well, I'll, I'll pay it back. Nobody's going to know about it, but her father finds out what happens.
1: <laughs> uh, his, the father who is like a very moral character. uh, you know, it's a symptom of her mental illness that she committed fraud. And it's a symptom of her anxiety that she committed fraud. And. It's a symptom of how unsafe she felt with her parents because they weren't listening to her about climate change. So she committed fraud. And then the father was like, This is bad character. I'm so disappointed in you. And uh, yeah, he makes oh, her
2: thief. return it. He 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 he's more than that. I mean, he he I can I can see him yeah. calling her, you're a thief. Yeah. Like, wow, you yeah. could go to jail for this.
1: Yeah yeah and it's she's young right and you get yourself in trouble when you're young and sometimes especially if you're indigenous or a person of color you go to jail when a you know white kid would so it's more charged if you're a person of color and especially if you're palestinian you know you do anything you you know you go get a coffee after curfew and the israeli people put a 15 year old in jail so there's that anxiety right oh boy but also like Mm-hmm. It's about character. Just uh, the father is deeply disappointed that, at her lack of character. He doesn't quite understand how the mental illness of anxiety is affecting her.
2: It's, it's very, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very powerful the way you, the way the, 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 the novel uh, unfolds. Each chapter has a survival tip. So for example, <laughs> yeah. chapter one, there is no planet B, the survival tip, how to build a shelter. And and you have a way of, of you know, throwing in some humor. But, you know, it's also, it, it could be useful if it comes to that.
1: <laughs> you know, what the heck, you know, uh, I think survival stuff is great. I have cousins who lived in Wakefield and friends who are like survivalists up there. And um, I know how to canoe <laughs> if I need to. I know how to build a fire. And, um, uh, yeah, I really feel like you should always have uh, emergency supplies on hand. And But I'm kind of making fun of her anxiety because I'm bullying my own character. I'm bullying Jamila because <laughs> I'm making fun of her anxiety about it. And her earnest, she's very earnest. She's not cool like Noor. Yeah. so I am sort of making fun of Jamila a little
2: so Jamila ends up uh, at a protest camp just three quarters yeah. of the way through and mm-hmm. we, we meet uh, Constable Davis and um, also uh, Kyle can you uh, set can you tell us a little bit about Constable Davis and Kyle and then I would love you to read um, right uh, uh, from you know after that. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, well, there was, I was in Toronto uh, when I was writing this chapter uh, near Dufferin Grove Park, which had an encampment in it.
2: Yep.
1: And you get all kinds in these encampments, including a lot of like semi-homeless street kids who have mental illnesses. And that's Kyle. And those guys are very um, susceptible to violence from the police because they're aggravated. And I also wanted to show um, that police could be human. I'm almost like trying to model to the police how to be human. So (laughs) I (laughs) do, is that an awful (laughs) thing to say? We'll see this weekend. We'll see. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, they They certainly did not show very much humanity during the occupation and they didn't. Go out of their way. They didn't go out of their way to protect this. I'm in Centertown, Ottawa now, and they didn't go out of their way to protect us. And yet, you know, if we, we had to be careful, I'd go out and, you know, talk and engage with the protesters. If we did something wrong, they were threatening to us. So, you know, I want to model to the police, kind of like I'm in my school mom phase of life, where I'm like, look, look, gentlemen, you can, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you can behave. And, and uh, so you're not feeling demonized. I wrote a police officer who is mild and is human, and but very good at his job and has restraint. Okay, I don't <laughs> want to see bad behavior on any of you police. <laughs> and they're I'm scolding them, and you know.
2: Yeah, well, good for you. I I, I think it's this whole defund the police uh, uh, movement, if you will, is gaining a lot of uh, worthwhile yeah. attention. Uh, but I, I
1: want I want funds yeah. to be you know rerouted. But I don't like the defund word, and I it, I know it came out of Black Lives Matter and it was really important because people were being killed in the streets. So let's just shut police down and start over. And one American city did do that, but I want to get rid of that word's not serving its purpose anymore. I want uh, police education to be funded more. You know, I want community resources to be implemented implement, implemented more. You know, mental health, homelessness, addiction all that police are trained to keep us safe. They're not social workers. And right now they're being poorly paid to be social workers, you know? So yes, definitely refund, you know, reroute funds. Yeah. But people still aren't really married to the word defund. So I get in trouble with my activist community when I argue this.
2: Can you know, and also at this rally is, uh, you know, uh, a a person called, Ellen Benoit can you pick it up from where yeah Ellen Benoit
1: is yeah so she's in she's in the encampment and Ellen Benoit is like the Greta Thunberg of Canada so I made her young
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: um I made her um you know only the young like Greta can be uh sort of indomitable um and you know a little bit on the spectrum about not reading people's cues Mm -hmm. and, and I really enjoy that about Greta, I think that's fantastic. So she's in the park and she sees Ellen. Wow, Ellen was here. She got up on the picnic table. She was in a pink striped tank and jeans. Her face was somber. I was impressed. She seemed really composed for her age. Hello, and thank you all for coming, she said in a clear, strong voice. I know it takes a lot of courage to go up against big government corporations. We want them to see what we see. We younger people are living in fear every day and watching adults do nothing. We younger people are panicking about the environment. All we have heard all our lives is reduce emissions, reduce emissions. You have 12 years, you have eight years. Well, let me say something to our government officials. She paused dramatically. She was very dramatic. You are going to die of old age and we are going to die of climate change. The crowd yelled its approval. I whooped aloud. Everyone here felt like me. I started to feel something in my stomach, something that wasn't a sinking pit, a calm glow. This was so much better than counting supplies alone in my room. Yes, we are panicked, and I want you to panic, she continued. I want you to feel the fear, and then I want you to act. I want you to act as you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house is on fire, because it is. Tell you what, I'm impressed with these young people. A man behind me muttered to who I guess was his wife. They were wearing matching Crocs. What did we do about it? Next week, there will be a demonstration in Ottawa. I ask you all to join us in marching on the Capitol. More cheers. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a food courier bike up. It was an Uber Eats delivery. Terrence furtively jogged over to him and took the bag and went back towards his tent. One of my sign-making buddies, Justine with the blue face, was waiting for him. Hello, I jumped. It was Noor and George and Beth. I knew you were here," said Noor. She turned to George. "George, go tell Mom and Dad we found her." Are there any hot dogs here?" asked George. It wasn't that weird a question. Every other time we've been here, it was for a barbecue or community event. "George," hissed Noor. "This is not fair," he said, and took off. "You idiot," said Noor, turning to me. I said nothing. A $2,000 generator? Really? You know that's fraud. I was going to pay for it. Jimmy, last I saw you, you were looking for a solar flashlight on bonds. Okay, I admitted. I messed up. I can't do anything. I panicked. Just come home and fix it, she said. I have $700 in loose from the coffee shop. I can help. What? $700? $700? You have, I started to say, suddenly we heard shouting over by the picnic table. This is bullcrap! Oh no, it was Kyle again. He had jumped on the table with the megaphone. At the police, he called out. It looked like Kyle was having trouble regulating. The speeches and cops must have stressed him out. The four or five cops who had been standing casually by the crowd straightened. The remained expressionless and seemed careful not to catch one another's eyes. Constable Davis ventured up to the table, his palms up and outstretched, trying not to look threatening, I guess. Kyle, get down, pleaded Jenny, reaching towards him. Constable Davis continued to approach and put one foot on the picnic bench. Kyle pulled the megaphone back and threw it into Constable Davis's face. Constable Davis half deflected and fell. In an instant, the bench was covered with officers dragging down and restraining Kyle. He screamed and twisted, kicking one female cop in the face. One of the officers pulled out a taser. I had never heard a sound before like the one Kyle made. It sounded like an elephant being strangled with a whine over it. Kyle went limp as the rest of the officers lined up in front of the crowd who were circling the scene and capturing everything on their phones. Brutality, people yelled as the police handcuffed Kyle on the ground. I saw Jenny approach an officer and start talking quickly and earnestly. Then she was permitted to go to Kyle. Norbeth and I stood there the whole time with our hands over our mouths. Ellen Benoit was sobbing and being patted on the back by her mom. Jenny spoke briefly to Constable Davis that got up on the table. Please peace, peacefully disperse, she said. We have legal counsel and hand. Kyle, he will be all right. Please obey the conditions the police laid out. No campfires and remove the extension cords from the field house. Norbeth and I couldn't stop looking, but we had retreated to a large tree about 20 feet away from the scene. No one left. About 20 minutes later, there were sirens and paramedics rushed in with a stretcher. Kyle was gently transferred to the stretcher and with Omar by his side. Put into a waiting ambulance. Instead of leaving, people started gathering around even more. People were coming into the park. Kyle's arrest must have been posted on social media. News crews started setting up and people started chanting. Some of them already had signs that said, Free Kyle and defund the police. Free Kyle! Free Kyle! Jimmy Lala, come home, said Noor. You can get hurt here. Come home so mom and dad can kill you. You know what? I said to Noor, I can't. I'm gonna see this through. I couldn't go home yet. I had joined this group and I wasn't gonna be like Terrence the tourist and go home to sleep the things that tough. Yes, I was shaken by Kyle, but this community had taken me in and I wasn't gonna hide anymore. In that moment, I decided I was gonna donate all my bunker food to the food bank. No, you have been right, I continued. I never do anything. It's all just for me. This time I'm gonna do something with everyone. Okay, said North, but we're staying too. I got to go pee, I said. I'll meet you over there. I pointed to where the news crews had sat. It seemed like the calmest area. I walked over to the washroom in the field house. The stench was thick and three of the four toilets and the muddy stalls were clogged. There was no toilet paper. Thank God for my go bag. A city staffer was there, unplugging and rolling up an extension cord. I waited until he had left and peed. When I walked out, there was an officer outside the door. There were more park staff at my tent and Carol was taking down hers. It, looks like, it looked like we were being removed. Miss, said a man in a city of Toronto embossed shirt and cap. You have to remove your tent and go. Okay, I'm leaving, I said. You got everything, Carol asked me. Yep, I held up my go bag. I'll do your tent, she said. It's okay. Thanks. I went over to where the crowd had gathered and was chanting next to the news crew. Several officers with hands full of white zit ties stood side by side. Seeing a news reporter in person was weird. They looked so small compared to how they appeared on the screen. This one was wearing false eyelashes and so much foundation it looked three-dimensional. But her voice was steady and her back was straight. Jenny was beside her being interviewed. She gave me a thumbs up. City staff are clearing a camp set up by climate change protesters in Duffin Grove Park, the reporter said. One protester was arrested after uttering threats and assaulting an officer. The reporter gestured, gestured behind her. Scores of people are showing up to rally in the park in solidarity with the man who was arrested and charged, she said. Here we have Jenny Laval, a leader in this climate change organization. This evening, what you see here is the community coming out to support us, said Jenny. At the same time, the city is evicting us, which is unfair. We've actually started to build long lasting bonds with the community here. The reporter looked back at the camera. The city is providing the protesters with time to gather their belongings, vacate their tents, and temporarily vacate the protest area, she said. City staff are removing unlawful items. In a statement, the city said it will store any of the items and equipment that the protesters have not taken with them, and there will be a process for claiming them. Please vacate the perimeter. Please vacate the perimeter. It was an officer on a megaphone. The police were now circling the crowd and sending them in a line down a path out of the I saw Officer McLean zip ties in his hand. A few protesters calmly sat on the ground. The police, four at a time, would lift them to their feet and zip tie them, leading them to the curb to sit. I could see their guns. I could see their tasers. The memory of Kyle being tasered was flashing in my mind. Free Kyle! Free Kyle! Free Kyle! The chanting was getting weaker. Jenny went to where people were getting arrested and quietly sat down. I followed. I had meant to get arrested bravely, but I couldn't help it. As soon as they pulled my arms back with the zip ties on my wrist, I started crying. Let me tell you, it is such a drag to be crying and you can't wipe your face. They gently seemed to be next to Jenny on the curb. Come on, said Jenny. You can wipe your face on my shoulder. When I lifted my snotty, tear-stained face, Officer McLean was standing over me with a kind look. Around us were neighbors with their phones out. We got you, girl, one lady said. It's okay, honey. Take it easy, kid, said Officer McClain. Don't worry, nobody's gonna hurt you. I hiccuped. In my bleary vision, I saw my dad approach from down the street, his sandals flapping. His plaid short sleeved shirt was sweat stained, and he had an extremely worried look on his face. An officer held his arm up to stop him, so he halted just within earshot. Kids are doing great things here. You've got to follow the law, said Officer McLean. The officer is right, said Jim. Being arrested peacefully is a very powerful tool. It forces the legal system to examine our constitutional rights and action. It raises alarm bells for people who don't realize how dire human rights violations can be. She looked me in the eye. It takes incredible courage and integrity, she said, to do what you are doing. You should be proud. Dad's face relaxed, relaxed a bit and he nodded at me. Don't worry, Habiti. I will be at the station for you. Constable Davis came over and took office and reclaimed aside. They spoke quietly for a second, and then Officer the McLean turned to me, leaned down, and clipped off my ties. The City of Toronto has dropped off charges. He said,
2: you are free to go. Wow, <clears throat> that's a very emotional ending. I know when I read it, the first
1: I forgot time, about that.
2: I, <laughs> <peered> <laughs> I was up. like, oh no,
1: this is harsh.
2: Yeah, I mean, she's, you know, her father showing up and seeing, you know, just how committed she was, and it, it's so interesting that this loner um could find such support being in in a crowd um, with with you know friendly people and um it seemed to you know it seemed to help her immensely she seems to be she seems to have taken a huge step in dealing with her her ptsd and her 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 mental condition yeah i think uh,
1: um community is everything. And uh one of the when I was reading that uh, by the way, I was I was so struck by how harsh they were on the protesters and uh, once again, you know, the occupation in Ottawa, where they didn't do anything. But yeah, community is essential and we are so fractured from community because of COVID right now. And I'm concerned, you know, like I think the human race needs to interact with each other. Uh, you need to find like-minded people. You need to find open, um, generous and tolerant communities. You know, you don't have to hate the people who aren't like you, but you have to find people who are sort of like you. And um, especially if you're teenagers, and I don't think Instagram is doing it.
2: No, no, absolutely. You know, We could, Mary Lou, we could go on for another 45 (laughs) minutes, but we've unfortunately run out of time. I'm looking forward um, to the next book where Jamila may be going to University of Ottawa and, you know, maybe she, you know, anyway, let's not talk about the future.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm okay with talking about possible writing things. I like, uh, I speak things into existence sometimes. So I'm thinking maybe Jamila, is like she ends the book ends in Ottawa at a protest. Yes. And I feel like such a patsy because it was a calm protest. And then the occupation happened and I was like, "Oh, so you know what? I'm going to make her go to the occupation. I'm going to make her go to Ottawa U. She's going to start studying science. She's going to go to the occupation. And then I'm looking forward to what those motorcycle boys have to say to me this weekend.
2: <laughs> May see you on the street. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for this book. It's wonderful. Thank you.
0: Republic of Childhood director Neil Wilson in conversation with acclaimed YA author Mary Lou Zaiton about her latest novel Jamila at the End of the World Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers and donors and thanks to the Government of Canada the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa the Ontario Arts Council the Canada Council for the Arts Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University and CBC for their ongoing support this podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening.